Hi, I'm Jeff Sickinga, Executive Director of the Ashbrook Center, and this is The American Idea, where we discuss the ideas, people, and events that have made America what it is today. We believe that by understanding our history and our principles, we can better live up to the promise of the American founding and preserve our ongoing experiment in self-government. Welcome to The American Idea. I want to welcome everyone to this episode of The American Idea. Today, we're going to be talking with someone a little bit different for this podcast, um, a wonderful author, a fiction writer. You know, we talk so many times with academics and public figures about politics, history. Today, we're going to be talking with a novelist about the craft of the novel, the craft of storytelling, and its connection perhaps to to history and politics, even contemporary affairs. And we're joined for this conversation today uh, by Bill Rivers. Bill is the author of a wonderful book that I just want to strongly recommend to our listeners, Last Summer Boys, a novel. Bill received his undergraduate degree from the University of Delaware. I went on and got an MPA from Penn as a Truman Scholar. And then among other uh, really interesting work for such a person, for such a young man, as I can say now that I'm an older man, <laughs> um, he was a speechwriter for uh, several U.S. senators, and then went on to do speechwriting for Secretary of Defense James Mattis. And then, of course, he's taken up the craft of the novel. So he has had an interesting and varied life and experience, and brings that to our conversation today to talk about his book about his life and experience, what he's learned along the way in storytelling and speech writing. Welcome, Bill Rivers. Jeff, thank you so much. That was a glowing introduction. I will uh, endeavor to live up to it. Thank you so much. And I'm, I'm uh, honored to join you and your listeners and it's really grateful for the time and looking forward to the conversation. So thank you. Uh, last summer, boys, it, the, the novel is set in the summer of 1968. It features, uh, I regard as a really interesting protagonist, a young teenage boy, um, Jack Elliott. It's really the story in many ways of the, the time, the late 60s, of Jack growing up and the, the way in which the country is riven, but also in some ways the way interesting characters come together. Um, you, you, I'm not sure you were alive in 1968. <laughs> no, <laughs> no, I was not. That so was why this story <laughs> set in that year? Um, thanks. Uh, so, you know, I, I had always loved that, uh, that era, that Vietnam era. Um, America in a lot of ways was, was in its adolescence and in, in the modern sense. Um, and, I was in high school during the uh, kind of the heyday of the Iraq war. And so that was a, a thing that was prevalent in my mind. And I had loved reading about uh, kind of the generation that had come before us. Um, you know, people who were, had been born after World War II, grew up in kind of the, the uh, affluence and the relative comfort of the 1950s. And now this generation is called upon to to go and fight a war that's that's um, poorly communicated and not well understood uh, then or now, and just how how people chose to meet that moment, I just found that interesting and um, and really fascinating. And the more I researched that 
that time period of 1968, the more I found all these uh, interesting parallels to today. So divisive domestic political situation, you know, a really bitter foreign war, um, lots of changes at home. And, um, and as someone who, uh, you know, loves, loves the country and loves its, its founding principles and its, its, um, its founding myth, it was a time where all of that was challenged and tested, I think, as, it, as it's being today. So I just thought that was a really interesting era to, to set a story um, and to tell it through the eyes of, of young boys who were on the cusp of, of kind of entering that, that fray. Tell us about the craft. I think our listeners will be very interested to know something about the craft of the novel. How does a person like yourself, as you say, we're not alive in 1968, didn't live through those experiences, at least as some of our listeners undoubtedly did. How do you approach writing a book set then? So I was, I was very fortunate in that I, I grew up in a family of storytellers and a lot of, you know, so it's kind of that Scotch-Irish influence by my grandfather and my uncles and a number of of these family stories uh, do appear in the book and that it really started with them. And so there was a uh, kind of an area of land uh, in Pennsylvania and right along the border with, with Delaware, very rural. And uh, my, my grandfather had grown up in that area, my uncles, and then my cousins and I, and we had these, these different adventures. And the, some of these family legends were, were passed down really around the campfire um, or around the hearth in wintertime, and they, and they get told over and over and over again. And you probably have experienced this, and your listeners have probably experienced it. You know, you get together, and, and the aunts and the uncles and the grandparents, and they kind of tell the same canon of stories. They change a little bit, or there's details that are maybe, you know, exaggerated here or there, but they just were really, really um, uh, beautiful stories. And so I started really with those, and I thought, you know, they would be part of a greater, broader narrative. And, and then, you know, going back to what we said before about 1968 and that era, and I thought, can, can you tell a novel, tell a coherent story set in this, in this time period? And I think the answer was yes. And so I, it, it really began with the personal family stories um, of my grandfather and, and my uncles. Uh, I don't, uh, I don't want to make any, I don't, I don't want any spoilers in this conversation mm -hmm. because people need to go out and buy this book. It is absolutely <laughs> beautifully crafted. It's a terrific story, but for our listeners to pique their curiosity, tell us what the book's about. What's, what's in the novel. So as we said, it's, it's 1968 and there are these three brothers, you know, rural Pennsylvania and their, uh, their city boy cousin has to come stay with them for the summer. He is leaving his city with its unrest following the assassination of Dr. Martin Luther King, um, that, that very difficult summer for our country. And so he's with them for the summer. And the, the main character is the youngest of these brothers. And he's very worried that his oldest brother is about to be drafted and sent to war. And he's conflicted because he knows that in their family, military service is one of the highest callings you can have. It's deeply honorable. The oldest son is is keen to go and, 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 and live up to the family tradition. And this little boy doesn't want him to go because he loves his brother and he's, he's worried about him. And so he wants to find a way to, to keep his brother at home and keep him safe. And he enlists the aid of their city boy cousin. So that's the, the basic conceit, but it is at bottom about uh, a love f for, for and between brothers 
and um, and a family trying to keep itself together amidst you know a really difficult time, all these changes in society, and uh, and uh, the the dangers and the, and the the problems of a great war. But it's it's basically about a family trying to stay together, and I. I I've gotten messages from people who read it and liked it, and they seem to resonate. That seems to resonate with them most of all about the idea that whatever else is happening so broadly in society at the atomic level of your family, that's where we all have the most agency. Um, that's where actually you can make the most difference if you're a parent, if you're a sibling, uh, or if you're you know, a son or a daughter. Um, that's where we, where we have the most um, ability to do good. And oftentimes we ever look at you know, we're concerned about what's happening out in the world around us, um, you know, on Twitter, on social media, but it's actually within the home that we have the greatest agency. So that's, that's what I wanted to focus in on. I find that, I find that theme really fascinating because you set the, the novel in a very politically charged time, as you said. And so readers might think, oh, it's set that way because it's a political novel. It's trying to make a political <clears throat> argument. And as you're laying it out here, I don't want to call it anti-political. But it's clearly you're saying that so much of the human concern and, and the importance of the human condition is found in the family, not necessarily in, in broader politics. Yeah, no, thank you for that, because that's really yeah, I would tr I tried to tell the story apolitically. Certain the political events are major catalysts. You know, like I mentioned, the the assassination of Dr. King, it's a catalyst for the beginning of the story. Um, and. And, and just in real life, no one exists independent of the political environment. It affects all of us, whether whether we like it or not, whether we want it to or not. Um, but the the focus is is on the interpersonal and within within this family. And I think um, if uh, if you've ever read Voltaire, uh, Voltaire's Candide. At the end of Candide, he has this line that has stayed with me ever since I read it way back in high school. And all the characters have had these, these crazy adventures that mostly have been characterized by them meddling in other people's lives and making things worse. And at the very end, they all have this understanding that they need to tend to their own garden. And the world around them is falling apart, but they know that their focus and the area where they have the most agency is tending their own garden. And um, so... Uh, Again, amidst the, the political maelstrom of, of the time or the times, because it's still going on today, um, just reminding people that it's it, it's actually not counterintuitive to to work within your family. It's actually probably the most productive thing you can do. If there's a if there's a rift between you and someone in your family, focus on healing that first, um, and then from there you go out into the into the world. And the characters in the story, uh, they they kind of implicitly follow that they um because they don't all agree right i mean it's, it's 1968 they're brothers and they're young boys so they've got strong opinions and 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 the middle brother is a classic middle child and he's 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 acting out and his form of rebellion is to get real into uh, senator kennedy's bid for the presidency and that's a very different philosophy and attitude to his his kind of world war ii or his uh korean war veteran father who is you know, much more conservative with a lowercase c, and there, there's tension there, um, but but there's love, and the family when they 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 focus on that first, and then they go out and they engage in their community, and so that's that's just what I wanted to help people see, and I don't think we see that a lot in our current art, 
um, you know, the, the novels that we're reading now or the, the stories that we're seeing, whether it's on Netflix or Amazon or, or any of the other ways we consume media, a lot of the stories aren't, aren't um, exploring that reality. So it's less, here's a message about family and more of, here's what I think actually is true. Let's look at this. And I just didn't see a lot of stories um, doing that right now. Yeah, that's what resonated me about the, the book. That that um, incredibly sympathetic portrayal of characters who, through the course of the novel, begin to have very different ideas. As you say, they're being influenced by the Vietnam era and going different directions. And it's, I'm curious as a person um, who reads novels but doesn't write them, <laughs> talking to a novelist, how do you sympath sympathetically portray such different characters. I'm thinking about the, the father who's a laborer, who, as you say, lowercase c conservative, supports the war, tradition of military service, and then, of course, the anti-war brother. Um, <clears throat> how, how do you engage and sympathetically portray both of those characters and not throw your weight as a novelist behind one of them? That's that's a real challenge. <laughs> and I don't know that I've right. done it because I... Um, but I think the, you know, so, so you know, so when, when you're setting out to write, you know, it's, you, you, you do your research and if you, if you can approach the, the, the source material of researching people, their letters, you know, from the time or their, their, their diaries from the era, and you do your best to engage with them uh, on, on human terms and find out, okay, is this person, is this person authentically holding these views and trying to do what they think is right in the world? And I think if the answer to that question is yes, then however much you may vehemently disagree, at least you can go back to that and find, okay, this person was very wrong, but I believe that they believe they're trying to, to go about it the right way. And if you can live in that, I think as a storyteller, um, you know, you, you start there and then you have them kind of follow the natural consequences of that. Um, so that's kind of one answer. On the other end, you still have to construct a plot and you know right. it's it's like going back to uh, the ancient greeks you know uh you know plot is the most important you know than you know uh, setting and character and and what's in a plot well there's a hero who desperately wants something and and if it's a happy story in the end they get it and if it's a sad story in the end they don't uh there's an antagonist who keeps them from getting what they want and and um and then, and then everything else is kind of how that plays out. And with Last Summer Boys, one of the earlier drafts, I sent it to my brother and asked him, what do you think of this? And he said, this is boring. And it was the worst. Boring. <laughs> boring. And it's, this okay. is the worst possible thing I could have heard. And, and the truth was, he was right. And he said, he said, you've got to drive your main character up a tree and throw rocks at them. He says, that's, he says this is what stories are. Stories are about somebody who wants something and every time they get close, you need to take it away from them and make it more difficult for them to get it. And, and so when you take those two things and you layer them on top of each other and authentic, you know, characters who are authentically trying to do the right thing um, with, with a plot where somebody wants something and you keep taking it away from them, well, then you get a really creative uh, place and you, and you throw on top of that a highly charged political time the story can almost run away with itself. And, you know, you just have to keep it on the, the guardrails after that. Yeah, I always wonder about that. Do, do you, how much of it do you map out ahead of time? You say, for example, you want to have a character with certain perspective and this perspective authentically held. 
how much of that is mapped out ahead of time for you and how much do you just sort of let the muse take over and start writing that's that's another really tricky balance and just for me personally i it took me a long time to write the book because i did not want to have an outline at first i thought an outline was going to be very restrictive and would you know curtail my freedom as as a storyteller and that was totally false um uh in this in this very weird but very true way order imparts freedom and and there's a lot we could say with that about it sure the, sounds like it uh, about <laughs> tell the, us, you know tell us what that meant for you as a novelist uh, for me that meant having a having an actual uh, outline that i could change i could change the outline but knowing what was going to happen five chapters ahead meant that i was freer in the near term to experiment because I knew where it was, where I was trying to get to. It's almost like, you know, rules of the road on, on, on a highway. Traffic laws exist to help everyone actually get where they're going. Do they make you less free? Well, on the margins, yes, but they actually help you arrive alive, generally speaking. And I think that's, that's true with writing. And so for two years, I struggled without an outline. And then when I was a graduate student at the University of Pennsylvania, I decided enough was enough. It took the summer and I went out to the Kirk Center in uh, Macosta, Michigan, where they uh, let me stay as a fellow for the summer. And I finished the whole book in, in about four, you know, not even, uh, you know, two and a half months. So something that I had wrestled with for two years, when I had an outline within two months, it was able to be finished. Um, and that's something that has stayed with me. It's, it's permissible to change the outline, but you need the outline. You need the roadmap. Before we continue with our conversation, I'd like to have one of our faculty members tell you about a special documents-based graduate program for teachers of American history, government, and civics. Hi, this is John Moser, chair of the Master of Arts in American History and Government program at Ashland University. If you are an educator who teaches US history, government, or politics, our program may be just what you've been looking for. Our approach is to emphasize primary sources since we think the best way to study the past is to read the words of those who lived it. We have a distinguished faculty made up of professors from both Ashland University and from colleges and universities across the country. And they're not there to lecture to you. We think it's better to learn through conversation about the documents. Ours is a hybrid program with two different types of seminar. The first are our week-long intensive in-person courses during the summers on the beautiful campus of Ashland University. The second are our live synchronous online seminars offered throughout the year. So if you're a social studies teacher and you're looking to deepen your understanding of America's past and its politics, please check out the Master of Arts in American History and Government program. You can do that by visiting tah.org slash programs. Well, it feels like that to me. I, I have no idea if you're if you're a musician or a, a jazz musician, but the 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 in jazz, right, there's this kind of, there's structure, but there's improvisation within the structure. Mm -hmm. And the, the novel, your novel felt a little bit like that to me. That's a really kind compliment. I actually have zero musical aptitude. Uh, my, my wife has all of the musical ability in our family. Um, but it's interesting that you say that because, you know, like I said, I, I, I did work at the Pentagon for several years um as a speechwriter for secretary mattis and that's actually something that he used to say with regards to military operations and he would use that analogy um uh, he said having a defined objective grants freedom of maneuver 
um, but you have to maintain uh, the jazz player's ability to improvise as you go. And so it was actually that same analogy that seems to work whether you're trying to write, you know, a novel outline or if you're planning a major, you know, military operation. You have your plan, but the plan changes the instant you touch down or the instant the operation kicks off. And so you know what, what you want to achieve, but you have to improvise on the way there. And I think that really, when you apply that to, to major questions in the country, that's the question of statesmanship, I think, is how do you have your set vision and the principles that you want to live by and the outcomes, very importantly, the outcomes that you want. You don't just want to live by principles with outcomes that are disastrous. I mean, that's not that's the, that's a true ideologue, right? Right. That doesn't sound that sounds very highly imprudent. Yeah, very imprudent. And that's you know, we see that in the French Revolution. Uh, you see that all over the place where these are our principles and we're going to live by them. And and the outcome is just disaster. Um, but but the question of statesmanship is how do we get to this outcome? How do we live by these principles? And how do we improvise and occasionally compromise along the way so that we can get there? Um, and I think that's for anyone who loves history or loves um, you know the American story. I think that's what's endlessly exciting about it is that you have all these very principled uh, people or people who are animated by principles in a really robust way. Um, and they, they have to improvise in, in how they get what they want. That's what I've been fascinated by, by American history. Well, it's, it's fascinating that you mentioned that connection with General Madison's thinking. Um, your time as a speechwriter for him, uh, how, does it, how did it help shape you as a novelist? Are speech writing and novel writing different things, the same thing, or a little of both? Um, they're very different. Um, when you're when you're a speechwriter, your job I generally try to view it as the speech belongs to the principal, so it's it's their thoughts. Your job is to basically be an extra mind to to sit down and burn the hours exploring arguments and and thinking about you know where is this audience when when we come to them, what do we want them to take away from it, and how do we if it's a persuasive speech, how do we get them there? If it's if it's a speech to inspire people, how do we do that? And a lot of that, you know, we could just go back to the Greeks and human nature hasn't changed since <laughs> the beginning of time. So that's the constant that you work with is, is human nature. Now cultures change uh, are very different. Uh, um, uh, and, and the day to day changes all the time, but, but the bedrock material is largely the same. Um, so that's that's uh, kind of the, the 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 port of call is when you're when in doubt, just go back to human nature. Um, so with a with a speech for someone like Secretary Mattis or or a senator, it's it's their speech. You know, you sit with them, they give you the directive. This is how I want the world to be different when I'm done talking, and then we would iterate. You know, however many times you know. You, 20 plus drafts, whatever the case may be. <laughs> right. And and by the end, you know, <clears throat> you know, you may have you may have written a bulk of it, but by the end of it, that's their speech. It's their mind that has engaged on it, that's produced most of it. And and that's how it should be. Your job is as a speechwriter is to kind of disappear. Um and it and when you have that collaboration, it's it's a little bit like um, it is a bit like music. You can anticipate, you know, the note that they're gonna want to strike just because you've heard them do it. Um as I tell people, um, 
if you had to write a speech for your dad, you could absolutely do it. If you had to write a speech for your best friend, you, you would just know how to do it. Oh, they would never say this, um, but they would say it this way. And so what's best is if you can just get raw time with that person, hearing how they talk, um, how they think about things and knowing how they've approached things in the past, that's going to help. Um, that's exactly um, what I, cause I was thinking that how do you capture the, such a, for example, secretary Mattis was such a distinctive voice and such a distinctive life experience mm -hmm. bringing to the secretary of defense position. How do you capture his voice? Yeah, for him, it's, um, you know, I remember you go back and read other speeches that they had written. Um, and when you, when you can read what someone else has wrote, not something that, you know, their committee staff wrote or that their, you know, their team of people wrote, but something that they wrote. Um, and Secretary Mattis has a, there's a lot of things that he himself has, has written. And so that was just, I mean, supremely helpful. There's almost no substitute for that. Um, and then, like I said, it's, it's getting that time with them and then speaking with them and knowing how they um, think about things and, and, and what they want to convey. <clears throat> um, and, and that, you know, for any of us, it, it goes back to those ideas of, of having a set of principles that you're in service of and service towards. And so whatever we say and whatever topic we are, we're going to be serving these principles um, with, uh, you know, with, with, with president Reagan, who is probably, you know, the, well, obviously the great communicator, you know, probably one of the greatest communicators of the second half of the last century with his presidency. And we used to study those speeches of, of Reagan, you know, tear down this wall. Any speech he gave really fell into one of three buckets. It was either we're going to, we're going to restore the American economy. We're going to uh, make people feel pride again in, in being American. We're going to get rid of the malaise from the Carter years, and we're going to defeat the Soviet Union. So really, almost all of Reagan's speeches, whatever they were about, fell into one of those three categories. Um, uh, and you know, if you go back and you read Lincoln's speeches, there, whatever the topic at hand may be, there is always one overarching goal that that he is aiming at, and that is preserving the country. So again, when you know those the principles that you're serving. That's how you, that grants that freedom of maneuver. Maybe it's an unfair question, but is it, <laughs> oh. <laughs> is it harder to write for someone like Secretary Mattis, or is it harder to write for yourself? Um, that's also a good question. I think in some ways it's easier to write for someone else because um, they, you know that they're going to weigh in on it and you know the ideas can oftentimes originate from them if you're writing for yourself at least speaking me personally um i tend to be a much slower thinker <laughs> than uh secretary madison it takes me a long time to understand what it is i necessarily want to say um and that's <clears throat> uh, and a little bit of that i think is maybe you know the station in life i've a dad now i've got young children you know they get up pretty early i try to get up earlier um uh, but it is not always successful. And, and some days, you know, we, we get up at the same time. And so, you know, building in the reflective time to sit and, and think about a problem or what you want to say on, on something that, that matters. Cause you always, you want to add something that's valuable. You don't just want to, you know, you're writing an op-ed. Well, let me just say the same thing everyone else is saying. That's not interesting or valuable to anybody, but if you're going to have something interesting worth saying, you have to really think about it. And for me, at least that, uh, it takes a long time, although I do think, and I have been told, um, and certainly one of my old professors at, at ISI told me, he said, the good news is that it's like, it's like a muscle that 
as you work it out, you get better at doing it. So as you, you know, thinking is, is an activity that you can get better at, you just have to do it more and you have to make time to do it. And that, as I listen to myself say that now, that sounds like a really obvious insight, um, but it's, it's one that's it's just helpful to call the mind again, especially when you're so busy. Cause like I said, I'm in a certain station of life where it's, you know, from the minute we get up in the morning, you know, little people running around to, to the end of the day, something right. is happening. And so <laughs> it's good to know that you can get better at thinking over time. So can I ask Bill Rivers the question that he said should be asked? Uh, okay. Readers reading Last Summer Boys. Mm-hmm. How do you want the world to be different after mm-hmm. they're done reading the novel? I think the, the thing that I would most want when someone puts down the book is to, to have the idea that human beings have an innate dignity that is unchangeable, that they can forget they have it, they can have it be trampled under by other people, but they can never actually lose it. It's just kind of inherent to who they are. And because they have that, that uh, imparts certain responsibilities on everyone else to, to engage with them in certain ways, but also to honor and to uphold that. And, uh, and, and because, because it exists independent of, of their political attitudes or even their religion, um, and, and even their own actions, uh, then it means that actually there's nothing they can do to to take that away. So, um, and I think that's that's really difficult because there are plenty of people who may have different political opinions from us uh, that you don't like and you don't want to like, uh, and you actually would would you know prefer that they not uh, have you know influence, but that doesn't mean that they're evil people. Um, uh, or, or let me rephrase that. It doesn't mean that they don't have value because they're human beings. No, no, they, they do have that. And that's, that's, that human dignity is pretty in, uh, inescapable. Now, like I said, they can forget that they have it. And certainly there are people who behave evilly throughout history by acting contrary to that dignity, um, uh, you know, really visiting violence on it in an intentional way. And I think those, you know, those actions can make you evil. Um, but that's that's the the number one thing is I would want people to take away is that people matter and they've kind of always mattered, and that means I have a certain responsibility in how I engage with them, uh, whether they're my family or my friends or people on the TV screen who have an opinion that I don't like. Right. Well, so. I find that to be a very humane understanding in the best sense of that word, um, and I, it's striking to me that so much of pop culture today. Um, even on the plot level, is human versus inhuman, mm-hmm. human versus anti-human. Yeah. Um, very rarely is it an understanding of the humanity of all involved. Yeah, I mean, it, to a great, <clears throat> you know, a great point is we're seeing right now a our society is really trying to figure out this moment as relates to artificial intelligence, and that's got some really serious questions and serious challenges for for us uh especially in the west but but certainly all over the world and uh so i've been reading about that and thinking about that and again i'm kind of a slow ponderous thinker um uh but i i actually decided well let me 
let me go back to some of our stories about this. What are some of the most iconic stories we have about the risks and the dangers of artificial intelligence? And you don't have to think long about it before you get to uh, Terminator, right? Uh, uh, iRobot with Will Smith, uh, which is only loosely based on the on the science fiction source material. But I, I, my wife and I went back and we watched these just in the last couple of weeks because it's something that I wanted to think about again, and I just wanted to see how how the art was was treating it. And so it's, and they're not news stories, by the way. Humanity has weirdly always had this this kind of skepticism and suspicion of of machines as machines have gotten more capable. And you know, you can go back, uh, you can go back a century and find stories that relate to this. Um, you know, the Industrial Revolution gave rise to that, but it's. Um, so, so that is a, a central uh, a challenge is something that society is thinking about. But to, to your point, Jeff, I think people do forget that these are uh, the common humanity of everyone involved here is something that that we have to deal with. And there are stories that do an excellent job of that, that explore that. Um, I don't say this to sound pretentious in any way, but if you have ever read War and Peace, I read it exactly one time in college which is probably the last time I'll ever read it because I don't know when I'll ever have that who, kind who of has time. time, right? <laughs> yeah, who has time for that, right? But I was in college and I was very uh, full of myself and I read War and Peace. But that, you know, that's got, I think, 800 characters all over the place, you know, Russian and French and, and, and different opinions and different attitudes. But I thought that was a really honest treatment of everyone's motivation. Uh, the scoundrels and the saints alike. Um, and there are scoundrels in that book. There are really evil, nasty people in that book, and there are absolute saints. And some of some of the characters are both. You know, they start as one and they become another. Um, and that's something that's just really, really. Um, that's something that's really interesting. I think that's something that we have to, as much as we want to wrestle with this this moment of of tech and, and artificial intelligence, somehow keeping that sense of of the human on both sides of different struggles. I think that's the key to it. I don't know how, uh, but that's my instinct is that the key to solving the, you know, the Gordian knot of artificial intelligence is going to be found, you know, not in layers of code, but in, in the human to human um, interactions. Hmm. You've had um, remarkable uh, success as a young novelist um, and terrific book last summer boys. What's your advice? There are listeners out there right now who have thought, you know, I've always thought about writing a book. I've had some great ideas for a novel. They might be young. They might be mid-career folks. Um, what's your advice to aspiring novelists? So my advice is absolutely you should write that book. Um, the thing that you've been kicking around, if it's been 10 years in the back of your mind, you should totally write it. And I would give some very specific guidance on that. So what I would say, is make the time every day at the same time of the day to write some amount of words. Um, so uh, wh whatever it is, whatever your schedule allows, and it doesn't have to be while you're at a computer, it can be you know, on a notebook on the bus on your way to the office or the metro or whatever it is, or the end of the day, but sometime when it can be just you and your thoughts. And every day I would put down a certain number of words on the page. And I would give yourself permission to have those words be absolute garbage. They can be as bad as, as they can possibly be. They just need to get out. And so just get them out of your mind and onto the page. 
and don't worry about it. You, have, you know, they say you have to kill the critic. You know, I would kill the inner critic, just let them be. Because once they're out, you can make them 2% better later. And you can make them 2% better as many times as you possibly need to get them to be acceptable. But they have to be out first. And so you can't have this this kind of perfectionism. And that's that's one of my struggles, I think, as a, as a writer, is a perfectionism. And you really can't have, you can't let that have any part of it. That comes later. There's plenty of time to be a perfectionist later, but not in the beginning. And so I would say, give yourself that time every day to write, get the words out and, um, you know, outline, like I said, you make your outline, stick to the very, very basic stuff. The story can, can make itself complex or complicated. You don't need to do that. That will happen naturally. Stick to the basics of your hero, their goal, What's the villain that prevents them from getting what they want? And maybe that, that villain may not be a person. You know, it's not always Darth Vader. Sometimes it's it's a phenomenon, you know, a storm, the weather, the war, inflation. Um, you know, uh, it can be whatever whatever it's it's going to be. Um, and that's and and do they overcome it or not? Um, and so those are kind of the basic things I would say is just just write it. And when it's, when it's done, you know, you can take however much time you need before you go back and look at it. Um, but it just has to get out first. And I think, uh, you know, a dear mentor of mine told me when I was, when I was writing the novel, cause it's, you know, you're almost kind of embarrassed to tell people, Oh, I'm writing a novel. Everyone's like, Oh, that's great. Okay. You know, what else are you doing? You know? Right. <laughs> and, and, and that's a fair question. Um, but, uh, but it, uh, this mentor of mine told me, if, if no one else reads your novel but your family and a few of your closest friends, it's still valuable to have, to have done it. It's a thing that's important enough to you. You rate enough as a human being to, you want to write the novel, write it for you and let it be done. And if no one else reads it, that's okay. And that was somehow just wonderfully encouraging advice. And I... And I wrote it and I'm, I'm thrilled. I mean, it's it sold, I think, close to 30,000 copies now and within the first year. And that's, that's wonderful. We're really excited. Um, but it was all really great to get that advice that no, it, if no one else reads it, the fact that you did it is enough. And so that's the advice I would give to, to listeners, you, get, you know, whether they're high school or college student wanting to write or whether they're, you know, they're retired now and they've, I finally got the time and I want to do this thing, I would say, go for it. The book is Last Summer Boys, a novel. Bill Rivers, thank you so much for taking the time to join us today on The American Thanks, Idiot. Thank you for listening to this episode of The American Idea. If you enjoyed this episode, remember to subscribe at Apple Podcast, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts and leave a five-star review. If you want to learn more or get involved in Ashbrook's vital work, visit our website, ashbrook.org.